Hey, this podcast is sponsored by Mississippi Land Bank. Visit them online at mslandbank.com. If you're in North Mississippi, you have anything land-related, you got to search for some land to build that dream home, or maybe it's farmland or hunting land, anything like that, that's where you want to go, our friends at Mississippi Land Bank. Also, it's presented by Jubilations Cheesecake in West Point. A reminder that you can get Jubilations Cheesecake in Kroger stores all over North Mississippi, including right there in the Golden Triangle, including in my hometown of Tupelo and all parts in between. So head on into Kroger and pick up a cheesecake from Jubilations. Here we go. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. Out-recorded Omaha. Here comes the Bulldog baseball team. And here's a ball in the air, deep in the outfield. Got a chance. Got a chance. Gone. Three-run homer. Back to me. Back to me. What's up, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Dogpile with Matt Wyatt. I am Brett Hudson, and we're all friends here at Dogpile, right? We're all friends. Co-host, co-host, listener. We're all we're all friends here. You so I'm got peel a back friend in me. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just singing. <laughs> singing. Exactly. I'm going to peel back the curtain a little bit and, and let y'all know what I had going on this, this weekend and how I was prepared to start this episode of dog pile. So Friday night when Emerson Hancock did not pitch and Mississippi state scored, Oh, about 75 runs on Georgia. I had this whole thing written out about how I hate Emerson Hancock because he didn't pitch and he ruined my over under line that I flippantly set towards <laughs> the end of uh, the last episode of Dogpile and how everybody was tweeting at me about it and how I wanted to throw my laptop out of the press box as if it were a frisbee <laughs> at some point during that Friday night game just to make Twitter stop. But then the rest of the weekend happened and State just racked up hit after hit after hit and run after run after run and Peyton Plumley was awesome and Ethan Small has more strikeouts now than Connor Pilkington had in each of his last two seasons and Jake Mangum broke the freaking SEC hit record. So many in state swept a team that was leading the SEC when when this weekend started, and now they're tied for second in the SEC West, two games behind an Arkansas team that had to walk off Tennessee on Sunday to sweep that series. Uh, also, two games behind the SEC at large, lead with Vandy and Arkansas tied at 15 and 6. So many things happened this weekend that, frankly, me hating my Twitter mentions on Friday night doesn't seem important at all anymore. Not that it ever was, to be clear, but the whole Emerson Hancock news is just totally irrelevant at this point after what happened on Saturday and Sunday. So in that sea of baseball events, which we will get to all of them in this podcast, Matt, what stands out to you from what was a crazy weekend of baseball in Starkville and really in the SEC as a whole. Oh, man. You know, one is, if you look at the league as a whole, how 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 you get to the end of the year like this, and it's just so up for grabs in terms of who may win the league or finish number one. Not that 
that is, you know, the, the the ultimate thing that matters. But you know, one team sweeping Arkansas sweeps State. State turns around sweeps Georgia. You had Ole Miss sweeping A and M, and it gets hard to keep up with after a little while. It just, you know, this was another weekend that illustrates how good the whole league is. But for State, you know, the way they were swinging the bat on Friday night, I know Emerson Hancock is good. I know pitching means everything, but. You know, they go out and they pound out 19 runs in that ball game on Friday night. I just think they were ready. And I think if he's pitching, it may not be 19 runs, but I think they figure out a way to win the game, you know, especially the way uh, Ethan Small was able to uh, get going after that first and, and kind of be himself. I, I I look at it, Brett, as a week, okay, not just the weekend, but the whole week, including the Governor's Cup where after what happened at Arkansas, if you are a good team, you come back from that Arkansas series and immediately respond if you're a good team. If you're not a good team, then you come out of that Arkansas series and you probably don't immediately respond, frankly. State is a very good team, and they had guys step up uh, throughout you know, they played great on Tuesday, pitched great on Tuesday. And I think the guy who's probably at the top of the step-up list, when, when again, during a week when you absolutely had to respond, they counted on Peyton Plumley in two of the four games. And he did he ever more step up and respond and pitch his best baseball during what could be a critical week coming out of that Arkansas series. To me, to me, Peyton Plumley is the star of the week. I agree completely. Uh, I saw State was casually launching the SEC Pitcher of the Week campaign for Peyton Plumley um, after his outing. Let me uh, let me quickly pull up his uh, his stats for the week because they were. They were nice enough to combine the stats over his two outings this week, so I didn't have to, so thank you to them. Uh, Here are his two starts. He started both games, let's not forget, against ranked opponents this week. Ten and a third innings, four hits, one run, three walks, eight strikeouts. He was just awesome. He he gave State a chance to win that Governor's Cup game because it feels like it was forever ago now. People forget State scored three runs. Was it in the sixth or the seventh or the seventh and the eighth? I think it was sixth and seventh. When uh, you talking about yesterday, in the Governor's Cup game. Oh, the Governor's Cup. I'd have to go back and look it up. Which I, I think it was sixth and seventh. Point being, the offense needed a, a good bit of time to kind of uh-huh. jumpstart itself. Yes. It and, was sixth and, and seventh going. inning. Yeah, it was sixth one and seventh. It okay, was a one to one ball game going into the top of the sixth. Right. And you made some good points about the offense uh, earlier, and we'll we'll put that to the side and, and get to that momentarily while we're talking about Peyton Plumley here. But Peyton Plumley gave Mississippi State a chance to do that because if if Plumley doesn't go out there and get State through uh, what was it four innings, right? Uh-huh. If he doesn't get State through four innings and and do so in in relatively clean fashion, State isn't really in the uh, in the chance to rally in that sixth and seventh inning and put themselves in a opportunity to win four straight governor's cups. Jake Mangum has never lost that thing wildly enough among the other seniors on this team. It's just what Peyton Plumley did this week was awesome, but what he did this weekend 
was was awesome, especially because there was that error in the first inning um, of his Sunday start, and he had to battle through. He had to get a uh, three straight Ks with guys on bases with guys on base in the first inning to end that thing and get out of that uh, clean. He he really, I think you hit the nail on the head. He found big moments and he stepped up to them. And to dive into his Sunday start specifically, I thought his slider, his breaking pitch. That's probably as good as I've seen it this year. Not only just in bite and sheer movement, but also the way he controlled it. Because I've seen him several times this year where, frankly, his best option with that breaker was to spike it, to throw it in the ground and see if he can hold it just long enough to get someone to swing over the top of it as it spikes on on home plate. Yeah. But Plumley had that thing for strikes. Yeah. On on Sunday there was and we're going to play a, a sound bite from Peyton in a minute on how he used that slider uh in his Sunday start. And it's funny cuz he he mentions using it away on left-handers cuz he's a righty. So if you use it away on a left-handed hitter, you're backdooring it. That's yeah. a sound bite. We'll play that for a second, but I vividly remember one pitch where he threw the breaker inside to a lefty, almost in that dead zone, almost that back foot slider, right? Where you're yeah. you're a righty, you're throwing that slider and basically aiming it at the back foot of a left-handed batter, assuming that it's going to stay in that hit zone long enough that it's going to break out of his bat path as he's swinging at what he thinks is a pitch on, on the inside half of the plate. That slider was really, really sharp to me, and this is what Peyton had to say about his break-in pitch in the Sunday start. Well, to, to left-handed hitters, uh, depending on their swings, uh, I'm thinking backdoor every time. So instead of just trying to let it get into the zone, I'm trying to think backdoor. Let the guys see it a long time and, and try to keep them off with the, with the slider. I mean, I know if I can get them, get them to look or get them to uh, take, if I can get it for a call strike, then now I got three or four pitches that I got them thinking about that I can mix in there at any point. So that the slider, uh, establishing that early, really helped me cruise with the fastball, and I think that's what was really effective for me. And when, when you combine something like that with the two-seam fastball that he has, that he commands incredibly well, he's been commanding it well all season long, and he can really yeah. play with the changeup off of that two-seam. Those, those two pitches, they just play very well for him individually, uh, specifically, I should say. And then you add that breaker in there. I mean, he, he becomes borderline impossible to hit. If right. he has all three of those pitches working the way that they were working on Sunday, I'm not opposed to having a debate of naming him the best Sunday starter in the SEC. I don't think that's preposterous. Well, and, you know, his numbers are starting to back it up. You know, the win-loss yep. is, you know, whatever it is. His ERA sitting here on the year at 3.42, I think. But look at it this way. He faces – um. He faces what the Ole Miss offense and the Georgia offense, yeah. And both of those are top fifteen teams. One of those is a top ten offense, and Georgia certainly was number two team in the country. All right, so you face Ole Miss and Georgia, their lineups. He faced forty total batters this week, and gave up one run on four hits. Wow! Think of it that way. I mean, that's just a, a different perspective to look at it going. And this is not – it's not like you're rolling out there against Alabama and, um, 
you, you know, Arkansas Pine Bluff in the midweek. Okay. This is the Ole Miss lineup and the Georgia lineup. Two teams that are, they have the potential to go way deep in the postseason. And he faces 40 at bats from those guys, the Ole Miss hitters and the Georgia hitters, 40 at bats. And he gives up one run on four hits total. To me, again, just an example of why. They had. You're looking at this with this nice rosy picture this week, is because two out of the four games that you played this week, you counted on Peyton Plumley, and that's what he gave you. He gave you his best when you absolutely had to have it. So my hats off to him. Yeah, he was he was excellent. To your point about the quality of of lineup, Ole Miss is still a top fifty offense nationally after struggling with Mississippi State the way they did. And um, I'm, I'm blanking on what Ole Miss did this weekend. Oh, they uh, they swept Texas A&M, right? Yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they swept mm-hmm. Texas A&M. And 5-4-13-3-3-2. So two of those games weren't necessarily offensive masterpieces. Then they struggle with Mississippi State in Pearl in the Governor's Cup game. And after all of that, there's still a top 50 lineup. In, in America, and, and Peyton Plumley sits him down nice and clean for for four innings. It was it was real impressive work out of out of him this weekend. And we're recording this Monday morning, so we don't quite know the uh, SEC award situation. I wouldn't be surprised if it comes out as we're recording or in between recording and uh, posting. But I, I won't be surprised one bit if he's the SEC pitcher of the week. And frankly, I might be a little disappointed. If he's not, let's go to the let's go circle back to your point about the lineup and how they struggled at Arkansas and they had to respond. So I I had two thoughts on that. One, it kind of goes back to the point I made in full count last week, uh, which you can find on the MattWyattMedia.com site, the Hudson Report blog there, which I've since posted another one. So one more. Uh, updated to this week's events and this weekend against Georgia. But it goes back to the one from the previous week where I went through and looked at teams over the last four to five-ish years that won the SEC regular season or won their division in the SEC regular season. Almost all of them had a stretch like this one, like that Arkansas weekend where – uh, to, to use the phrase that Jake Mangum says he hates, that's baseball. Like the things just don't work out well for you. But almost all of them immediately come back after that and get right quickly. It's it's very hard to find a team that wins something in the SEC regular season that has two bad weekends in a row. It's very hard to overcome that and still be among the best in the SEC. And this weekend – gives Mississippi State all the reason to believe that they can end the season as that. They had 17 hits in that Arkansas series as a whole, 19 in game one against Georgia, 12 in game two, and eight in game three for a total of 39 hits this weekend. That's their third best SEC weekend of the year behind Alabama, which makes sense, right? They're bad. And that crazy Auburn weekend where they scored 15 and 20 runs in in consecutive games. So. If you put this weekend in context with what State has done against SEC teams throughout the year, the only reason this wasn't their best hitting weekend of the year 
was because Alabama is really, really bad. And because they got super uh, angry, to keep it PG, they got super angry after losing that Friday night game uh, to Auburn and then took it out over the next two days by racking up 40-something hits in in those two games alone. This was as good as this lineup has been all SEC season long, and it comes at a time where they absolutely had to have it if they want to preserve their chances of being among the top of the SEC in the regular season and then preserve their chances of being a, a national seed in the top eight. You know, and Brett, I want to um, make a comment or two about to kind of the overall. Yeah, the, the trend. You go down against Arkansas, you come back up this week. Uh, just kind of what I see in that. And I'll do that when we come back. I want to hear a message from our sponsors here real quick and then a couple thoughts on the week that was. We do more than make a living off the land in North Mississippi. We live for the land, too. We live for an early morning duck hunt, time spent in a deer stand, a day of fishing, and the outdoor life. For more than 100 years, Mississippi Land Bank has been a great hunting partner for recreational land lovers. By helping to finance the land they've set their sights on, we know what a hunter loves, and the lay of the land in North Mississippi. And that's where I stand. All right, so what I was kind of driving at earlier, Brett, so you, you touched on it. You know, you look back at that Arkansas series, and I keep thinking about something Jake Mangum said, or I think it was several of the guys they said that, that you referenced that um, the guy they saw on Friday night at Arkansas, it was the best that they had faced this year in terms of stuff and velocity and location, he was really locked in. And um, so they got mowed down by a guy who just went out and had a great outing on a Friday night on the road in the SEC. Hey, guess what? It happens. And most years <laughs> it happens a lot. Mm-hmm. And the other games, they were just outplayed. You know, they, they were just outplayed on the road in front of a tough crowd and a tough place to play. Arkansas really turned it on, hit the ball well. It happens. And this weekend with Georgia was like a reverse of that. You know, it's like the same scenario, just different teams. And in this case, like the Arkansas series, that's a really good state team on the road. But it was the home team who's also very good in front of their home crowd that just had the confidence in the mojo. And and things, you know, the right hit fell, and the next thing you know, it was all downhill, and they, they played their way to the sweep. And this week, State was on the other end of it, and it's Georgia, who's a really good team on the road in a very tough place to play in front of a huge crowd, and all the momentum was the home team, and State just rode it right on into that sweep and you know, kind of showed it right off the bat. So this stuff happens in SEC play. Now, Emerson Hancock would have made a difference for Georgia. Does State score 19 runs against an Emerson, Han- you know, an Emerson Hancock-led uh, battery, no. No. The, but the state probably – the way they were confident in swinging the bat and focused on Friday night, yeah, they probably win the game somehow regardless of whether or not Emerson Hancock pitches. On the other side of that, I do think that it is true – it's not making an excuse for Georgia, but they didn't necessarily play that well, and they looked like a team that never could grab any confidence at any point in the weekend – any mojo, any momentum, and I think it probably for them did start when news hit their team that, hey, our guy isn't pitching on Friday night. I felt like a lot of what you saw from Georgia 
was a result of, you know, teams really feed off their number one guy. And when you go on the road and this kind of challenge, which they knew it was, without your number one guy, that's a blow to your confidence right there before you even lace up your cleats, right? And so I think that's a little bit of what we saw with Georgia. Is that- no, it's it's a very good point. I, I agree completely. I, I think anyone who has played this game, even at any level, like even in Little League, once you start having kids pitch, I think you've experienced the phenomenon of having your best guy yeah. on the mound that night and just kind of having a different pep in your step that day. Like, hey, man, we, we got this dude on the mound tonight. We got a good chance to win a ball game today I, I think you can experience that at pretty much any level that this game is played and when Georgia did not have that feeling in Emerson Hancock taking the mound Friday night I, I think you make a good point their their confidence was probably shaken from the second Mississippi State put a four spot on them in the bottom of the second on on Friday night and I, I wouldn't be surprised if if some time passes and we, we learned that Georgia just never really recovered from that. Because if you look at it, after that four spot in the second inning, State scored five more runs before Georgia scored again. It was nine to one after five innings. And then, what, 14 to two after, after six. Uh-huh. So they, they just – basically, State never let them off the mat, which State get, deserves credit for, right? Like when you don't have – your number one guy there, you can still start to feel it after four, five, six innings saying, Hey, we got a chance. Like we were, we we were down like, like that mean from a couple years ago, they had us in the first half. I'm not going to lie. Right. Like that high school football player, um, in that post game interview, like you can sort of build your momentum back from, from something like that, but state never allowed it and they didn't allow it for the entire weekend. Uh, I do have more to say about this lineup this weekend, but while we're talking about the Friday game, I I had a take on on Twitter, and I want to know what you thought of it, because I didn't get a bunch of reaction to it, mostly just likes and retweets, which you can't really uh, tell from. Jake Bangham got intentionally walked twice in that Friday game, Uh and... I I just absolutely hated it. And and not for the record purposes, not because uh not because he's chasing a record and the guy deserves ABs to to get that record and and blah blah blah. So here's here's the tweet. I get it, Mangum's about to be the SEC hits leader, but you're just putting another dude on base for a guy that's slugging 568. Hello, Jordan Westberg. Get it together. They intentionally walked Jake Mangum twice mm-hmm. for Jordan Westberg to go two for five with three RBI and a walk in that Friday night game. I, I So I guess to boil all this down and, and let you digest it this way, yes, walking the SEC career hits leader in a vacuum, probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. But Jordan Westberg is behind that guy. Yeah. So this isn't in a vacuum because you have to deal with the guy behind him. And I don't know that that's necessarily a better potential outcome. No. Um, well, if you look at it beyond just Westberg, too, and, and I know it's a one-game vacuum, and there, 
they're making the decision based on scouting report and history, but then the one game, it backfires on them tremendously. So they walk him twice. In that game, the two and three hitters, Westberg and Allen, were a combined five for nine with seven ribbies. <laughs> okay? So on a, that's how you lose games 19 to three right there is Jake was three for four by himself, you know, and then he had the, the two intentional walks. So you can't get the guy out anyway, right? You're putting him on base instead of making him earn it is what you're mm-hmm. saying. On a night when the two and three hole hitters, they could not get them out. Westberg behind Mangum goes two for five, had the base clearing triple. Well, there's a double, I guess, and he takes third on the throw, right? But he, it was three runs driven in on that one swing, I thought. And then Allen on Friday night was three for four with four RBIs and a double, who, by the way, they walked him twice also. So it totally backfired on him because you know, he couldn't get Mangum out. He, he goes up to the plate six times, you get him out once. And the other guys, you couldn't get out behind him either. Top of the lineup was really good. So it just totally backfired on Georgia. Another thing that I hated about it is it's not like you're putting a guy who's slow on on yeah. first base. I mean, Jake Mangum stole a base in, in this series. He could very well leave Mississippi State as the career run scored leader. He's He's kind of on pace to threaten that mark before the season is over. And again, Jordan Westberg is slugging almost 600, so he's – more likely than not to plant a double on you. And if anyone on this team is more well-poised than Jake Mangum to score on first from a double, it's a very, very short list. All of this just, it just baffled me from, from that Friday game. And I, I don't know. I just, I didn't like it. Uh, I just, I didn't understand it. And maybe, Maybe others will will hear this and and give me some some counter evidence, but I, I frankly there's just there's just nothing to convince me that walking Jake Mangum is a good idea, which is a sentence I <laughs> cannot believe I'm saying out loud, but here yeah. we are. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. the other the other thought I had on this lineup was I found it interesting how they got back to what they usually are, how they shook Arkansas and got back to what. They've been all season long, and I'll let Tanner Allen describe how they did that. The last couple of days of practice, we got the other group, and we're just like, you know, we got to get back to who we are, and that is grinding out of bats and hitting the fastball. You know, we were taking BP on the field the other day, literally all just about all day long, two strike approach, because you know we're one of the top hitting teams in the country, and we don't strike out that much. In Arkansas, we're striking out left and right. And that's not us. We were able to come out this weekend and uh, really compete and put some good at bats together and uh, get three wins. What's interesting about that that is when you have a team that is so focused and honed in on its two-strike approach, right, you're possibly choking up on the bear a little bit, you're shortening your swing, you're just trying to chop something in the field of play and see what happens, Mm. that doesn't sound conducive to power, right? Right. But power is all this team has right now. Well, that's not true. They have a lot of stuff, but they have power right now. I mean, look at that Friday game. They had – Let's see, one, two, three, six, seven doubles and a homer. 
Uh, I, I wrote in full count this week how they're threatening to be one of the better power teams, power hitting teams in Mississippi State school history. Check out the full count for the full numbers on that. And I, I asked Coach Lamonis about this. Like, how does a team that has so much emphasis on its two strike approach still hit for power this way? And Lamonis said he thinks it's about wearing pitchers down to the point that they just get sick and tired of throwing a seventh and eighth pitch to a guy, and it makes them more likely to throw that mistake pitch that Justin Foscue or Jordan Westberg can hit for an exit velocity or of 108 miles an hour or that Dustin Skelton can hit for yet another homer. That dude's got nine this year, and Justin Foscue has 12. I just found it interesting that these guys had battling ABs in their mind. They had wanting to foul pitches off and, and be just a pain in the neck for pitchers mm-hmm. in their mind, and it somehow produced power that continues them on the trajectory of potentially being one of the best power-hitting teams in school history. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, there's just one moment that I feel like is indicative of kind of what you're touching on. And I can't even remember what game it is now. It's just – it's driving me crazy. I I can't remember if it was that Auburn series. It might have been. Or if this was a non-conference game. But anyway, I was calling the game on SEC Plus with Bart. And Jordan Westberg had two strikes. And he steps out of the batter's box. And on television, I'm able to kind of say, as people can clearly see, we had great camera work. Um, and, And side note. The whole crew that does the SEC Plus broadcasts on campus for state is the best in the conference in terms of the way they, the numbers of cameras, the way they operate it and direct it, and camera angles. It's really, really good. A lot of the schools don't don't have it. They certainly don't make baseball the priority that state does. But anyway, so it was a moment where the camera shot grabs exactly what I'm talking about, saying, you know, it's two strikes, and look at Westberg's approach. He chokes up on the bat significantly. And the thing is, he's trying to make contact. He's going to spread out a little bit. And with two strikes, what you're just trying to do is protect that plate and make it make that bat head that much quicker to just make sure you make contact somehow with two strikes. It's a different approach than no strikes, one strike. And doggone, if he didn't – and they had it. They zoomed in on his hands. You could see it. He's choked up a good two inches on the bat. He spreads out in the batter's box, and the very next pitch, with a choked-up bat, bang. He hit a home run out of dead center field. Dead center field. The opposing <laughs> outfielder runs into the wall and you know knocks the door open out there in front of the green batter's eye. And, yes, with two strikes and a choked-up bat, Westberg hit a ball out to dead center field. And so I think about that as you're talking about power in that you know, the, the at-bats throughout the year have been really, really good. And you see the strikeout numbers. You know, Westberg strikes out some. But as soon as you make a mistake, he hits it as hard as anybody in the country consistently. This lineup, for the, for the better part of the whole year, they are not chasing stuff out of the strike zone. So very few pitchers are getting any gifts they may get a gift call every now and then from a guy who he takes one off the outside corner, gets called a strike. 
you may get a gift every now and then when, let's say, Westberg chases a breaking ball low and away. It's ball four, but he chases it and swings and misses. Just every now and then. But for the most part throughout the lineup, these guys are just not hacking away at stuff out of the zone. And when you come in the zone, they're really going after it. And there's just such disciplined at-bats. And so I don't know uh, you know, how much you – how much credit goes around? I mean, it's they all get credit. Players, coaches, everybody. Gotro, the hitting coach. But this year on this year's team, and maybe it's just age, but I think all the work they've done, you look at Foscue and everybody, it's just paying off in very, very disciplined at-bats in every game, and it's just so hard to get them out and to get those swings and misses. And so State sitting there – uh, just one point ahead of Vanderbilt, still leading the conference in terms of team batting average, and State's hit 50 home runs. So uh, Kentucky has 53, Florida has 55, Vandy has 57, Arkansas has 58. That's the only teams with more home runs. And um, you know, I well, I take that back. South Carolina. The worst hitting team in the league overall, they actually lead everybody with 63. So they've hit a bunch of home runs, but they're not hitting for average. But that 50 home run mark for a team that's hitting at a 318 average, it, it's pretty clear right now at this point in the year who the best hitting teams are, the, the combination of contact and power. And it's State, Vandy, and Arkansas, and nobody else is really all that close. Uh, no, I think you bring up a good point about uh, crediting both coaches and and players for this because approach approach was something that you saw develop and grow and frankly change in uh, well in, in everything but the first three games of last season when Andy Canizero is no longer here and Jake Gotro is given full and complete reign of of the hitters with help of then uh-huh. assistant Mike Brown. Um, over the course of the final 60, they played 68, so 65 games of the 2018 season. Approach was something that you saw develop and change when these hitters were hearing from Jake Gotro and Jake Gotro alone. So Gotro certainly deserves credit for how these guys can adjust to different situations and adjust to whether they're hot or cold and, and how they need to break things to – to get the luck back on their side, but also the players got to execute those, those kinds of things. So uh, both, both parties deserve a ton of credit. You know, I, I realize what, nah, sorry. I had a cough. I covered it up. On oh, okay. recording, I though. realize we've been going for quite a while and we have yet to touch on several important things such as Mangum breaking the SEC <laughs> hits record. We have yet to do that. We have yeah. yet to discuss Ethan small, Continuing to be awesome. We have yet to discuss Luke Hancock getting more starts this weekend than he had in his entire career up to this point. Let me make sure that that's correct. No, he got a, a non-conference start. So put it this way. He got more SEC starts this weekend than he had SEC starts in his entire career to this point. We have yet to discuss Mississippi State doing all of this while Elijah McNamee is struggling. Now, granted, how dare he have his batting average sink all the way down to 311? Yeah. Oh, the horror of hitting 311 <laughs> as the calendar turns to May. The horror, right? Yeah. Um, but we have yet to discuss all of that. 
Uh, Jared Lebelt got high leverage outs again this weekend, as he basically always does. Brandon Smith was good in relief. JT Ginn went five innings. Uh, and, and not to mention the rest of the SEC race. Uh, State's tied for second in the SEC West and the SEC at large. Arkansas still has some tough baseball ahead of it. So does Vandy yeah. to a certain extent. All of There's a lot going on, and we have yet to discuss it. So where does your mind go, <laughs> Matt? What, what are you particularly – uh, motivated to discuss. Well, I mean, it's a disservice not to discuss Jake, um, and and so many others are, and you know, noticing it. And we've been right there in the lead up to it. You knew it was going to happen, and um, and then after he gets the three hits on uh, Friday, you pretty much knew it was going to happen. And I, I just feel like it's one of those things where you get to witness history in person. Therefore, it's even that much more unbelievable because most of us, our tendency is to the, the lens that we look at life through is we see cool stuff happening all over the world, but we see it as it really never happens to us. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then yeah. so as a state fan, it happens to you and then you get to see it live. You get to see it happen the way it happened. Um. Yeah, it's just a really neat deal. It's a really neat deal to witness that history. It's going to be really hard for somebody else to to catch him and break it on down the road. It's going to be really difficult for someone to do that. And yeah, yeah, because basically the only thing, the only fault of Jake's is that he didn't hit every day for his entire freshman year. Right? Yeah. It, it took him a few weeks to get into the lineup every day, and then he still won the SEC batting title that year. So basically, someone has to play every single day of all four years of their college career and hit 400 to well, break this record. That's basically what you have to do. Uh, yeah. Good luck. Good luck with that. But you, you mentioned the the moments. I did want to uh, tell a story here. So I was walking around uh, the outfield Sunday during the Sunday game, uh, talking to some folks, having, having some, some good food shouts to Chad Dacus on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, he, and we were just cause some of the conversations I was having with people out there. Um, it, that moment, I think that moment might have christened the new duty noble field for them because last year it was under construction and people were still trying to figure out what they could and couldn't do in their new outfield setups and getting comfortable and all that other stuff. But now they have that moment, like the old, duty noble feel people remember where they were when burke masters hit that grand slam people remember where they were when state clinched that sec title in 2016 and where they were when uh when that super regional with arizona happened in 2016 and all these moments that jim ellis described to us for so many decades they remember where they were in the old duty noble for all of those moments. And now they have that moment in the new one. Everyone will remember where they were when Jake Mangum became the SEC career hits leader. Uh, I think I think the moment genuinely meant that much to basically everyone other than Jake and John Mangum, which is what I wrote about uh, that day. You can also find that on the Hudson Report uh, part of MattWyattMedia.com. Uh, but I, I really think the moment meant – 
that much to all of the 9,000 plus people in the stadium that day and the countless thousands watching on SEC Network around the state and around the uh, yeah. the southeast. Uh, how lucky was SEC Network to get that <laughs> game, right? Yeah, not on not on SEC Network Plus. How lucky was was ESPN to have that one on the uh, on the true airwaves? Yeah, uh, but yeah. I thought the the moment truly was that big, and and Jake Mangum was just thrilled to have it over, and and that's okay. I'm I'm sure it was weighing on him. He he more or less admitted as much, but there there are plenty of people out there that are willing to enjoy the moment for him while while he wasn't quite enjoying it as much as you would think. People forget that Jake played the majority of his sophomore year with a broken hand. Yep. I mean, he was out there pounding out singles, um, you know, and at times struggling to throw the ball back into the infield with uh, a broken hand. <clears throat> so, And still yeah. hit 324, by yeah, the way. I know. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's it's just ridiculous. So hats off to Jake. It was really, really cool. Um Ethan Small, he still leads the SEC in strikeouts, 66 innings pitched, and 114 strikeouts. And he has so a 12-strikeout lead over the next guy, Zach Thompson of Kentucky, who's pitched uh, quite a few more innings than Ethan has. Jeez. Yeah. Um, Mangum is second in the SEC in stolen bases at this point in the year. <laughs> hey, I know. A uh, kid from Tennessee, Charleston, is 30 of 33. Jake is 20 of 26. Let's see. Um, you have Total bases, you have Mangum in the top five in the SEC, but Foscue is actually second in the SEC with 116 total bases. So what he's doing, hitting doubles. I think State leads the league in doubles by a pretty good number, uh, but he's got the 12 home runs to lead the team. But J.J. Blade of Vandy leads the league 129 total bases because he's hit 21 home runs. That's the thing about that. So Foscue's tied with a group of people for second in the SEC with 12 home runs. But Blade leads the league. He's got nine more than that. He's hit 21 home runs this year. It's just incredible. Um, The the other Mangum stat, he leads the league in runs scored. He scored 54 runs. You know, Jake right now does not lead the league – in in batting average, individual batting, that goes to Austin Martin of Vandy, who's batting 405. But and then Mangum's number two batting 394. But Mangum has not quite, but almost well, he's almost 50 more at bats. I guess he's got 45 more at bats than Austin does. So so in terms of hits. Jake leads the league in hits. He has 80 hits this year, Jake does. The guy in second place is 15 behind him. Gray Kessinger of Ole Miss has 65 hits, and then Foscue has 64. So, see, Austin Martin's batting 405. He leads the league in batting average. But he has the same number of hits overall as Justin Foscue does. So, it's just kind of depending on which of those stats you want to look at. But... Overall, even though Martin's got a better batting average, because Jake has so many more hits and so many more at bats, um, I, I'm going to go with Jake right now as the best hitter in the league. Oh, I think uh, I think everybody would. And yeah. now now that uh, now that 
this record chase is over. If you're if you're wondering what you need to keep track of every day, that was the second half of my uh, full count this week. Two two record chases that you can watch now that Jake Mangum's SEC record chase is over, but his NCAA record chase is very much not over. He's got a lot of spots to climb in the NCAA uh, career hits leaderboard. He's got 355 right now, which ties him for 12th in NCAA history. And I'll leave this up to you, Matt. I could go spot by spot if you really want me to, but if you want to keep it succinct, I can tell you he is only 18 hits behind number five all time in NCAA history. So if all goes as it has up to this point, he'll spend the next two or three weeks going from 12th in NCAA history to the top five. Um, Mm -hmm. He's he's obviously going to go down as one of the best hitters and college baseball history. And I've gotten a few questions about the overall NCAA record. It is 418 by Phil Stevenson at Wichita State from 1979 to 1982. So it's at 418. Reminder that Jake has 355. Uh, I got a question about this from from a friend before the Sunday game. So I I answered it with these numbers and there are only one game out of date. So do with it what you will. At the time he had 79 hits in 44 games. If they were to go to the national title series, they're probably going to play something in the range of 34 ish more games. Um, Let's see. He would have to, what, where's the number? Oh, man, did I, did I miss it? Well, no, okay, so. Be, uh, the number would be. Um, 45, It'd be 63. Yeah, yeah. I mean, after 79 and 44, he'd have to go 63 in like something in the 30 range, which yeah. is not impossible. No, it's for not Jake impossible. Bangham. I don't think anything is impossible. Yeah. Again, he hit 324 with a broken hand. Yeah. Um, but that's going to be. That's going to be pretty tough, but I, I do think winning a regional, winning a super regional, and, and being in Omaha would open him up to hitting the 400 mark, which only two college baseball players have ever done. Phil Stevenson did it, and then Khalil Green did it at Clemson from 1999 to 2002. Uh, yeah. So again, I can go spot by spot if you want me to, but the the short version of it is he's going to spend the next two or three weeks climbing from 12th in college baseball history to fifth and becoming one of just three players to have 400 career hits is far from out of the question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's going to be fun to watch also. And now, you know, what Jake really wants is what everybody's going to do is, you know, the attention squarely now is not that it really wasn't before, but it's just fun to follow Jake's chase. I think now the attention is squarely on the team. You know, what are they doing? What are they accomplishing? And, you know, how are they setting themselves up? And I, and I just – it's an incredibly uh, pretentious way to frame the rest of this season up. But I just think it's true. I think the rest of the regular season and, you know, the SEC tournament, all that stuff for state fans is just going to be fun. It's going to be a fun thing because state has put itself in such a good position to host – now, yep. you can't fall off the map. The team can't pr- approach it like it's just fun. The team wants to go to A&M and win two games. You know, this is a state team. Like, if you're looking for things to prove, I think state as a team has proved a lot. But you, you also – I think this team needs to go to A&M and prove 
that they can go away from Duty Noble Field in front of a big crowd away from Duty Noble Field and play well. They need to prove that. And they've got the next two weekends to try to prove it. Because if you look where they've been on the road this year, State went to Arkansas, big crowd, loud, hostile environment on the road, didn't really play well. But the rest of the road has been they were at Tennessee. Well, that's like going out and you know and playing in front of your typical high school crowd, frankly. Yeah. They went to Florida. Well, I mean, how many people came out and watched that? A couple thousand people? You know? And and they're probably more state parents there than Florida fans, from I know, what I heard. And, and you know, the thing about Florida baseball is they talk about that, well, attendance ain't that great because you know, throughout the year in the warm months, you look at April and May, it gets so hot down there. In the postseason, it gets so hot. You know, they go put ceiling fans into the new stadium. Well, I got news for you. That was played on March the 15th. Okay. It's not hot on <laughs> March the 15th. So, where are the people? Uh, but anyway, it's not a big, loud, raucous road environment. Right. Okay. And then before that, you're in the non conference. There are no loud, raucous environments in the non conference at all. So, the true. SEC road series for state were Florida and Tennessee. They went and took care of business in both places, but the one loud place, big atmosphere on the road they went to was Arkansas and they got their clock cleaned. And so if, if I'm in the locker room, I'm going, Hey boys, we've yet to prove that we can go out of our own building where the other guys are loud and play well. And so you got two weekends to prove that that's at A&M this week. And then at Ole Miss in two weekends, <clears throat> and the final series of the regular season will be hosting South Carolina. So that's the one thing State has to prove is can you go out of the new dude where everybody there doesn't like you and is loud, and can you play well? It's it, Yeah, you make a good point. And you mentioned the the next two weekends are are exactly that test. They go to Texas A&M and, and to Ole Miss. Uh, no, yeah. no midweek game. This week, so it's uh, it's nothing in between the uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday series at Texas A&M. Then they'll have their final midweek game of the season against Memphis on Wednesday in between that series at Texas A&M and the series in Oxford against Ole Miss. Of course, we'll come back to you uh, Wednesday because it's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday series. We'll come back to you Wednesday to preview that, uh, that Texas A&M series. Ought to be... Yep. Ought to be a fun one. It's a high leverage one for for Mississippi State considering the uh considering the log jam in the SEC West cuz Arkansas is 15 and 6. Mississippi State, Ole Miss and LSU are all 13 and 8. Texas A&M is 11-9 and 1 and Auburn is 10 and 11. Uh Georgia's also 13 and 8 and Vandy's also 15 and 6. So you've got eight teams uh within five or six games of one another with uh, three weekends left to play. And of course, when you've got that, the half of the conference grouped together, a lot of them are going to play each other and records could swing pretty quickly. And, and Mississippi state is, is pretty clearly in that, in that situation themselves. So it should be a, yeah. a fun final three weeks of the year. as state tries to chase down a sec title. Yeah, no doubt. And um, right now, Live RPI at WarrenNolan.com yeah. has Mississippi State at number five. 
One one spot behind Georgia, two spots behind Arkansas, three spots behind Vandy, four spots behind UCLA. So that's your top five in the RPI, according to Warren Nolan, tracking it live. UCLA one, Vandy two, Arkansas three, Georgia four, Mississippi State five. State fortunate. I mean, you know, you're good, and so your only your only sweep of the year is on the road at Arkansas, a team that's number three in the RPI. So it's not a ton of damage, right? But also, you look look right behind them in the live RPI, Brett. Number six, East Carolina. State beat them. Number seven, Louisville. Number eight, Tennessee. State took two out of three at Tennessee. That's number eight yep. in the RPI. Texas Tech, a midweek neutral site win in the non-conference there. Number 12 in the RPI. Auburn's a number 14 RPI team. We took two out of three from them. Um, you did lose two home games to LSU, but thank goodness they're sitting there at 17 in the RPI. And the team you're visiting the next two, A&M sitting there at number 19 in the RPI, Ole Miss sitting there at 21. So it's a good thing. You don't want to necessarily at this time of year sitting there at number five in the RPI. You're glad to go play these teams on the road. Your RPI is your RPI is glad to play, to play number 19, number 21 on the road because you're going to finish up you do have a midweek in there, and you're going to finish up playing a r- terrible RPI team, South Carolina, who's 67 right now. Mm. But you're going to host them, and you just have to win that series not to have much damage done. So with all that said, because of where these next two are on the road, I'll say it again. This is true, I believe, to make sure you wrap up the hosting in the postseason. State's in phenomenal shape. You just can't get swept. Now, the team is going to go out there and try to win every game. But I'm telling – Brett, you tell me if I'm wrong because I'm I'm open to suggestions. Seriously, tell me if I'm wrong. But what I think is State just has to pick up one win at A&M and they just have to pick up one win at Ole Miss and their RPI is going to be just fine. It's – you know, I can't necessarily argue against that. Um, now we're talking RPI is fine in terms of hosting a hosting. regional or hosting a super. In, in terms of hosting a regional. Oh yeah, yeah. One, one in each will be fine in terms of hosting a, a regional. If they want to, <clears throat> excuse me, if they want to become a top eight national seed and try to host, yeah, both regional and super regional, it would certainly behoove them to straight up win win those series. one of those two series yeah. and and pull out uh, a three and three record out of two. Uh, SEC road series against top 25 RPI teams. It would certainly behoove them to do that. But if we're talking just hosting a regional and letting the the chips fall where they may, because we've all seen uh, non-top eight seeds host regionals. I mean, it happened for Vandy last year. Winning, winning one in each of their two road series is absolutely enough to do that. Yeah, I agree. All right, Brett, it's about an hour-long podcast, which is good. Uh, I really need to go use the little boys' room, so I think we have to wrap it up. And you got a radio show to have. Yeah, I know. I got to get on the radio. What in the world am I going to talk about? Yeah, no, it's going to be easy. This this radio show is going to be super easy. Record setters, drafts uh, in the NFL, and yeah, so on and so forth. All right, great stuff as always, man. I appreciate you. Thank you, sir. All right, for Brett Hudson, I'm Matt Wyatt. This is Dog Pile. Brought to you by Mississippi Land Bank. Y'all look them up. Let them know you listen at mslandbank.com. 
Uh, they help make this podcast possible. Same thing at Jubilations Cheesecake in West Point. Told you earlier, you can find them in North Mississippi Kroger stores. So head on back to the freezer section and pick up a Jubilations Cheesecake made right there at Jubilations in West Point. Brett and I will see you next time on the next Dog Pile. See you.